sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Alright, so the writer here is describing the identity of Christ and he's doing an open comparison with uh, Judaism and, and angels. I'm, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the significance of this. It may, I think that it may not be on the surface significant. But let me say something else before this. In the, the scholarship of Hebrews, very much similar to John until a recent you know, decades or so, uh, people were saying, oh, he's dependent upon a Platonic system or dualism or Gnosticism. But uh, that has pretty much faded. Uh, and what I will say is that I think, in fact, like I did with John, that it's not, it's not Gnostic at all, but in fact it's a challenge to Gnosticism. So to Hebrews is a challenge to a Platonic form of thought or a Hellenistic form of thought or to Plotinus. Um, he's using the language of wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon, uh, which is a, a book that uh, it does not appear in our scriptures. But And some then, what I would say is that it may at times appear like He's using the language of Plato. But what I think is actually happening is that there is an engagement with the Old Testament. And in a Hellenistic or Greek setting, the, the hermeneutic of Hebrews, like that of John, is going to automatically challenge a dualism. Whether it is an explicit dualism that the Jews are encountering or it's just always a dualism. Uh, that is being faced. Uh, however you answer that, the point in the book of Hebrews, in, and he, even using Jewish categories, you know, the earthly and the heavenly temple, the sacrifices, you know, the earthly sacrifices, the heavenly sacrifice, the priesthood on earth, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is taking these things that we might think are separate, and the culmination of the book, of the person and work of Christ, is that these things are brought together in Jesus. So that if you think of this just in terms of uh, alienation and that if a philosophical or religious understanding is in fact kind of reifying that alienation that there's an absolute separate separation, and this is Plato, between the material and the spiritual, uh, there is enough similarity then with what you know, in Judaism, in describing the sin condition, that this seeming dualism is overcome. Now, that, that may have been a fairly complicated thought. But the idea is, what's, what's sin? Sin is alienation. Sin is separation, separation from God, dividedness of heaven and earth. That's, that's what's taught in the Old Testament. And what is reflected in, in human philosophical systems and religious systems is reflective, I think, of what Scripture is describing as the problem. But what is the, nat the, the dualism, or the, the apparent dualism, 
that is identified in the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews is going to be resolved in Christ. In Christ, so that there is separation or alienation between heaven and earth, the earthly priest, and uh, but it's brought. This is brought about by sin, and this is precisely what Christ is overcoming. So the writer of Hebrews is not acknowledging some sort of dualism between heaven and earth, flesh and spirit, but he's describing the bringing of any perceived gap uh, uh, that Christ is bridging that gap. Uh, And so the permanent, and this sentence is important, the permanent embodied nature of Christ throughout the book is the way in which this dualism is overcome. So I've said all this to get at what he's saying in these opening verses. Uh, in his comparison uh, with angels, it's, I think that it's not simply that he's comparing you know, the status of the pre-existent Son of God with angels, but he's actually comparing spirit beings with the incarnation uh, suffering of Christ. Uh, And so uh, he's bringing together uh, in these, we have the series of of quotations. I don't know if you caught that. And these series of quotations are quoted all over the New Testament. This same verse is being quoted again and again, applying to Christ. Uh, And so why... You know, what, what is the significance of the quotations? Um, you know, if, if, if we say, oh, he's comparing Jesus with the angels, well, wait a minute, there's no competition, right? Why would that even, here he's talking about Jesus as God, why would he even bother to compare them with angels? But notice the way he describes it. The angels are ministering spirits, and the son, the invitation of the son to sit at, uh, God's right hand is on the basis of his, uh, you know, he's not he's not just simply describing the son's pre-existent nature, but he's saying having provided atonement for sin, he sits at the right hand of the Father. So that what it what the description of Christ's enthronement of Christ's kingship is having passed through the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension. Now let me prove my point here, at least defend it a little bit. Uh, in one nine, it said, you know, the Son is exalted over his peers or companions. Apparently there are others like the Son. If we were just talking about Jesus, the pre-existence of Jesus, there's nobody like that, right? So the comparison is not simply a contrast between created and uncreated beings, but there's something else that's taking place. And so the question is, who are these peers? Welcome home. Um, And clearly it's not the creator or the, uh, the, the... the creator God or God in his omnipotence. And then also, do you understand what I, the, the, the question I'm dealing with? Why the comparison with angels and what is the significance of this comparison? The point I'm making with this comparison is to say the significance of it is to say the angels are spirit beings 
and Christ is embodied. And it's precisely his embodiment that gives rise to his uh, being depicted as the Son of God. Son of God is the, the topic here. Um, so when, when in one five and, and verse 13, he says, When did he say to any of the angels, and then it goes on, implying that the peers here are not angels, and that Jesus' sonship is not on the order of angels. There are places in Job and other places where the angels as a corporate body are referred to as the sons of God. But I don't think that's what the writer's talking about here. So the thing that distinguishes the son and his peers from angels is in 1, 3 to 4. In which he's, uh, Maisie, can you, you have 1, 3 to 4, read it for us so we have it for us. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand. And this is the image of the messianic figure that is, you know, he's uh, portraying here. Uh, and so it's on that basis that he's above the angel, angels. The position is one that he has attained to. That is, that he's done certain things to, that he's attained to this position, uh, making purification. And then in verse 13 to 14, you have 13, 14 too. Mm-hmm. But to which the angels has he ever said? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all the ministering spirits spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So no angel was ever invited to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so the, the writer bases the fundamental contrast between the Son's invitation to sit upon the heavenly throne and the angel's lower position to the fact that the latter are spirits, while the former is a human being. It's the enfleshed nature. It's the that he's the royal ruler. You know, he's here's the Davidic Messiah. Here is the promised King of Kings, and of course that's the significance of all these passages. He's bringing together all of these images from the Old Testament, which normally you know a Jew, a Jew would not think of the Messiah first of all as divine. I mean, uh, yeah, as the, the Davidic, you know, ruler is not, uh, and he's bringing in a passage that makes that clear. But just the fact that he's talking about the Messiah, we know that he's talking about a man. He's talking about a human being. And this human being, then, is the sovereign king sitting at the right hand of God. So the reign of David that was promised, you know, that the throne of David will be forever. Well, here is the king in whom it's happening. And that's the significance of the phrase Son of God. But Son of God contains, a, it, I, I, what I'm going to say is that all of these quotations are summed up in the phrase Son of God. That it is this divine uh, messianic figure who represents the t- return of Yahweh, who represents Israel, and who is then the salvation of Israel, the deliverer of Israel. The Jews had those figures, uh, or that understanding, 
but they didn't put them all together. And that's what's happening here, and it's happening in many places in the New Testament, primarily with Paul, but I think here with the writer of Hebrews too. He says in uh, 2, 14 to 17, which is kind of the clincher of this, the argument here. Uh, can you read that too, Maisie? 14, 2, 14 to 17. Oh. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil and release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For, go yeah, ahead. go ahead. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, mm. in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. On what basis is Jesus king? On what basis is he subduing all things? You know, the process that the writer says that all things will be subject to him. And he's quoting again, you know, that uh, that the earth will be the footstool for his feet. And so all things are being made subject. And this is then describing it uh, that he's rendered powerless him who had the power of death through his sharing in the flesh and blood of the children, which is, you know, the brothers and sisters uh, that he constitutes. He's the first of many brethren, as Paul will say. Uh, a simple way of describing it, and I'm not going to pursue this tonight, but the writer of Hebrews is just going to describe it. He's bringing two worlds together. He's bringing the, what we would normally think of as the earthly realm and the heavenly realm, and he's making them one place. And I'll try to make that argument next time, but you can see it in verse 1-6 and 2-5. When he brings the firstborn into the world, and the word world here we talked about last time, is it can also mean the idea of the family or the oikos, the household of God. He did not subject uh, uh, did not subject angels to the world to come. The question here, and there's a bit of a problem here, but I'll but I, uh, to sum up what I'm saying tonight, I just want to say that he's bringing these two worlds together that might seem to be separate. And I think the tendency then under the law was toward a hermeneutic which accentuated the separation, right? This is the idea of the holiness of God. God is completely separate. Uh, think of the temple here. You know, The whole point of the temple is to describe, to describe separation from God, the holy of holies, the holy place, you know, uh, uh, the realm, the place for Jewish. It was a series of walls. Um, and what the writer of Hebrews is doing is showing us how Christ is an alternative hermeneutic breaking down the barriers in the language of Paul or bringing these two worlds together. Um, when the temple and uh, what the temple and the law describes is, in a sense, the division, the alienation, we could say, that exists within ourselves, uh, an antagonism that cuts right through us. And it's this sort of dualism 
uh, and I, that I think is reflected in religion and philosophy, whether it's Platonic philosophy or just philosophy. I, I think you can just say philosophical thought is always a dualism. Uh, and the spiritual, the you know, the way it's described, the spiritual, the divine, the noumena in Plato, the forms, are forever separated from the material, the mortal, the phenomenal, and the shadows of this world. So when the writer of Hebrews takes up the language of the Old Testament, uh, it's not a surprise then that he arrives at the deep grammar of the, the gospel, or that the gospel is addressing this, this deep predicament of the human situation. Um, so in the same way that the writer of Hebrews appeals to the Old Testament, and he's combining these various scriptures to get together, that they converge, uh, I think we could say this, that this is getting at the, the universal human predicament. Uh, let's look at the passages. Um, first of all, the, the Psalms 2-7. If Jesus you know, is the Messiah, uh, then he's, go, he's bringing together this passage. Some, does somebody have Psalms 2-7? It's there in Hebrews, actually. Uh, you have that one, mm-hmm. Maisie? I or? will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay. Uh, I don't know that pre-Christian Jews ever referred to this as a messianic passage. But in Christianity, this may be one of the most quoted passages referring to the Jesus as Messiah. And then the, the passage Samuel 7.12. Is that... Uh, somebody have that one? 7.12? Mm-hmm. 2 Samuel 7.14? 7.12.14, yeah. Um, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits an equity, I will correct him in the rod of, with the rod of men and strokes of the son of men. Uh, that he will be a you know a father to me and I will be a son. Is that the the phrase? Okay. Um, think here of you know that we understand Jesus' own declaration. He calls God Father. The implication is he's the Son. Christ, you know, Paul describes this in both in Galatians and uh, in Romans that we're enabled to cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, 2 Samuel, actually 7.12, if you read it in the Septuagint, it says, I will resurrect your seed after you. Uh, think here of Romans 1.3-4. Jesus, from the seed of David, according to the flesh, was marked out as Son of God through the resurrection. How do we know Jesus is the Son of God? Through the resurrection is the implication. And the appeal then to these to this messianic fulfillment is on the basis of resurrection. And I would say ascension, that ascension is inclusive of the resurrection. Uh, so it, it's no surprise that there's not a belief before the fact in a resurrected Messiah because there's no belief before the fact that the Messiah would die. Think here of Peter, you know saying, oh no, you're not going to die, you're the Messiah. 
Uh, and so these passages uh, become clear in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. This is what N.T. Wright says about it. What I am suggesting is that the resurrection demonstrating the truth of Jesus' pre-crucifixion messianic claim joined up with the expectation of Yahweh's return on the one hand and the presence of the Spirit of Jesus on the other to generate a fresh reading of messianic texts which enabled a full Christological awareness to dawn on the disciples. So pre-Christian Jews had not read 2 Samuel 7 or Psalm 110 as referring to, to the Messiah. You know, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. But after this, they're going to read these two texts together and they're going to combine the Yahweh and Elohim as ref referring to Jesus and God the Father. So here in Hebrews, it's Theos. God is Theos. And then Jesus is referred to as Lord. What it's describing is the Trinity. I believe right here in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, you know, the combination of the Yahweh has returned. Uh, to defeat Israel's en enemies in, uh, in Christ. So he's done this through the resurrection, uh, which is, you know, that's the compelling reason. Uh, he's done this, we see it in the worship and awareness of the presence and power uh, of, of Jesus, uh, which is, you know, suddenly it's, it's, there's an understanding of these texts referring to Christ. So the reality of Christ draws together the idea, three things, of a resurrect Messiah, Son of God, and the returning of Yahweh into one person. And Psalms 110, which is here, did we just read what Psalms 110? Mm, read that no. one. The Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, I don't know, I don't think there's any messianic element recognized in that prior to Christ. Uh, but what's happening is that they're going to use the term Son of God then to bring these together. That make, this is M.T. Wright again. The messianic title Son of God came to be used as a vehicle containing a combination of ideas which had not previously been combined. When the early Christians wanted to join up their conception of the Messiah with the idea of the return of Yahweh, or the idea that in Jesus, Israel's God had returned in person, that very phrase was found to be ideal as a way of expressing differentiation within the identity of the one God. A differentiation with wisdom as its partial explanation. In the wisdom of Solomon, 7-9, wisdom was simultaneously the self-expression of the one God and the necessary equipment for David's true heir. And this is the one part what that... What was that from? That's from uh, Solomon, wisdom of Solomon, 7-9. Now what anti-right thing on the That's from uh, Paul and the faithfulness of God. 
693. You got that memorized? Yes, <laughs> Okay. This, this is a, an interesting thing that comes out. Wright brings it out, but several people bring it out. This is actually very interesting for our feminist perspective here. I don't quite know what to do with it other than to point to it. And that is that wisdom is described as feminine. And what the writer is doing here is applying or, or saying that Christ is this personified wisdom. Hey, hey. <laughs> Jesus is our mother. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I made a statement here. I won't tell you my statement. Go but. ahead. Okay, Christianity <laughs> is a sex change operation. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> okay, sorry. Um, Can you take that back? Oh, yeah, I take it back. Um, but something is happening here uh, around the role of Christ as son. And one has to do with the role of wisdom and the role of wisdom as applied to the Son. Um, with, uh, Hebrews 1.3 is a paraphrase of Wisdom 7.26. For she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. So for Hebrews, the Son like wisdom, is a reflection of God's radiance and the imprint of the divine reality, who sustains all things. Um, this is uh, Clement of Alexandria. Christ is called wisdom by all the prophets. This is he who is the teacher of all created beings, the fellow counselor of God who foreknew all things, and he from above, from the first foundation of the world, in many and various ways, trains and perfects. Hence it is rightly said, call no one your teacher on earth. With reason, therefore, the apostle has called the wisdom of God manifold, and it has manifested its power in man in various ways, by art, by knowledge, by faith, by prophecy, for our benefit. All wisdom is from the Lord and is with him forever, as says the wisdom of Jesus. This, this is a very interesting discussion in their early church fathers. If you want to hear, John and I just did a podcast on this from, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sarah Coakley. Sarah Coakley, in which Coakley is going back and referencing the early church fathers on genderedness and God. And so it's very much there as part of the discussion. And, and whether that's significant here, I don't, I don't know, other than to say that, again, wisdom, Yahweh, the Messianic King, the Savior, the, and then Creator, all of these things are combined in the person and work of Christ, and all of that is summed, summed up in the phrase, Son of God. And I think that's the significance of that phrase. Um, I'll skip to Martin Engel. So, when all of this is combined, as it is in Hebrews, and, and also by Paul, and I think there's a lot of overlap between Paul and the writer of Hebrews, we can say that 
Christ is the second self of Israel's God. This is N.T. Wright. Same book. Uh, that is, the, here is a clear reference to the, the divinity of Christ, but not just to the divinity, but to the messianic reign of Christ due to his humanity. And so the writer here, I've already said this, but let me say it again. He's going to use theos as the source and goal of all things, wisdom. He's going to use kurios for Jesus, which corresponds to Elohim and Yahweh. And what does this get? Well, they're both God, but there's a differentiation in God. And that, I'll conclude, let's read Hebrews 2, 3 to 4, if somebody has that. Well, here I've got it. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. I must have the wrong one, reference. One, three, yeah. Huh? Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Chris. Go ahead. Is this the one? Mm-hmm. So three? Yeah. Three? Yeah. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It is... It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by sign and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Um, The other person of the Trinity, notice, enters in here, so that and this is true in Paul consistently, that the work of Jesus is in some way made a reality for us or Christ is made present to us in and through the work of the Spirit. Um, That here then is the work of Elohim, of uh, Yahweh, of a Trinitarian God. And I think that's the significance. Let's read, let's go through and read then the passages uh, and just see if we have covered chapter one. I didn't, I actually didn't do much with the first four verses except that I spent three weeks introducing the book. So, uh, Chris, you want to read uh, verse five again? Mm hmm. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So you're going you're gonna to find a lot of controversy surrounding this. And I, what I just said tonight is probably a minority interpretation. What, I'm sa- what I said is, I think the discussion, the comparison with angels, it may indeed that be that he's referring to some cosmology. You know, certainly in a Hebraic understanding influenced by Hellenism, there is the idea that angels are kind of the mediators between us and God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if in the Old Testament we think of the angels as actually being behind the theophanies in which the law was delivered to Moses. That may all be part of the reference. I don't know that. But what I'm saying, what I think is significant here, is also that 
the, the comparison is that the angels are spirit beings. And they mediate in a sense. But Christ, as divine and human, is the final and full mediator, which is the opening of the verses. But you can disagree with me if you like. Uh, Michael, you want to read verse 6? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And so the first, you know, this is, I think, the same way that Paul uses the phrase firstborn, the firstborn among many brethren. It's not that we are gods in the sense that Jesus is a part of the Trinity, but we are the firstborn of the family of God in which he is the elder brother. And so we are made his brothers and sisters. And we then are the fulfillment in Christ of what God intended for Adam and Eve, right? So here is the second Adam who fulfills, and the, the first Adam in apocalyptic, or in the, uh, some of the apocryphal literature, you know, Adam's created and the angels are told to worship Adam. Well, uh, in this case, the, the argument is, well, that Christ then is... Uh, the reference. So let all God's angels worship him. And then uh, verse 7, Maisie. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels, spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. And so the point in this verse is the angels are spirits. They're spirit beings. They're uh, they're they're winds, they're, they're messengers. And it's sort of like his, the opening verse here. The, God has spoken to us in, in various ways, but now he's spoken to us in his Son. And he's spoken directly and fully in the Son. And then, Rachel, you want to read verse 8? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever... The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And, and you know what you might think here, well, wait a minute, now he's referring to God. Well, the verse, the, the original verse here is referring to God and referring to this divine messianic person in divine terms. Go ahead, Rachel, read, the, the, read verse uh, 9 there. You have love... I'm sorry. <clears throat> You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your God, your God, and the picture is a divine person. You know, it's, it's a Trinitarian reference that we can understand in light of the person of Christ. Uh, and, the, the, of course, the anointing is the anointing of a king. And so here is this messianic figure who is Yahweh, who is divine, who is, uh, this is Yahweh's return. Think here of Jesus coming into the temple. You know, the Lord has come to his temple, and that's what the Jews have been waiting for, and that's fulfilled in Christ. Taylor, you want to read verse uh, 10? And you, blessed 
Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Uh, the, this is, you know, in, in think of John here, or think of wisdom, uh, that Jesus is the Logos, he is the wisdom of God, uh, he is the, uh, uh, I, I think again though, he's the wisdom and Logos in connection to creation. That's woven throughout all of these passages. It's never just an affirmation of the deity of Christ, but it's an affirmation of the humanity of Christ along with the, the deity. And then uh, verse 11, uh, Alec, or Taylor? Did, is it Taylor's Taylor turn? I just went. Oh, Alec. Okay. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment. Go ahead and read verse 12, which is actually a continuation. And like a mantle, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Uh, I mean, the, the picture here is of uh, the Creator and the, in relationship to the creation. And then, uh, Kelsey, can you read verse 13? No, we just skipped right over the garment reference. Oh, bring it out, Joel. What's significant? No, it's okay. I'm here. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Uh, and I think that all things then are being brought in subjection to him. He's going to say in verse, is it chapter 2, we do not yet see all things brought in subjection to him. And he's going to picture this being brought into subjection as a process that we are in, involved in, our faithfulness to Christ. Uh our suffering with Christ is pictured as part of the process that we'll come to. And verse 14, Miss Saxton. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? They're spirits. And who do they serve? Those who are inheriting salvation. So there's a hierarchy here, but the hierarchy is turning over any kind of notion that angels are above human beings in this hierarchy. Because Christ, then, is at the top of this hierarchy. I didn't do it because I already did it last week, but if you remember what I did last week, we went through five examples, and Hebrews was one of them, in which the writer is taking a cosmology, he's addressing that cosmology, but he's turning it on its head. And that's clearly what's happening here. That in any kind of cosmology of uh, you know a Hellenistic kind, or perhaps even a Hebraic kind influenced by Hellenism, the angels would have been at the top of the hierarchy, the high priest, you know, kind of at the bottom of the hierarchy is... And that's all going to be switched around as Jesus is the high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies. So, the, the, what is always happening, I think, in a kind of 
cosmological or eschatological engagement in Scripture is that it's brought to us in language, you know, this is a language that these people understood, these Hellenized Jews were supposing. The same thing in Colossians, the same thing in John. And so, two, as, uh, as we apprehend this, I think we speak the same word of Christ into the present cosmology, present understanding, the present worldview. Well, that was very quick, and all of these verses deserve more than I gave it, uh, but I was just trying to get a, a big picture look. Any questions, comments? Go ahead, Alec. Uh, this is more of just something I was looking at as the style of the verses. But have you ever thought that Hebrews one one through two four is a chiasm? Run it down for us. How do you think? Well, in in chapter one, you have God has spoke to us, you know, long ago through the fathers and the prophets, um, and now He's spoken to us in His Son. And two um, one through four, and, and one one through four, it talks about the whole um, Jesus being set up as the authority over the angels, over us, etc. In two one through four, you have this whole idea of well, let's pay attention to what we've heard, corresponding to what's been spoken. For there's something better than angels, and if the angels um, proved unalterable every transgression, disobedience, and just penalty, how will we escape this salvation? And so there's a comparison between the two. And then inside of um, 1, 5, and 6, he talks about, um, you know, that you're my son, I have begotten you, and um, let all the angels of God worship him. And then um, in verse 7, he makes his angels... Um, winds or spirits and his ministers flames of fire. And then in uh, 113 and 14 you have this whole, which would correspond to it in the chiasm in my brain noggin, um, this idea that uh, Christ is seated at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies a footstool and then he talks about the angels saying, aren't they ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And so there's this idea of God as the authority um, angels as ministering spirits to that end inside of both ones. Um, and then the uh, scepter of your kingdom passage and the whole um, Lord you laid the foundations of the earth would correspond to one another as the, the middle part of the chiasm. Yeah, it's clearly the, the writer is doing something very intricate and it's, uh, you know, there's whole books written, and I haven't sat down and read them, on the form and meaning of the book of Hebrews, because he's doing so much with the form. And so you, I think you're, you're hitting upon something. Yeah. The, uh, well, it, one thing it means, it's something you could sing. You could almost sit down and, and mm -hmm. sing this opening. You know, it's so well balanced. Uh, the, it's poetic. It's uh, it's just sort of beautiful to, to listen to. Um, sort of like the opening of John or the, the passage in uh, Philippians. That, uh, I don't know, I think this is, is a homily. 
And so this may be a, a early representation of what preaching looked like. That if this is typical preaching, it was very intricate, beautiful to listen to, and powerful. Uh, I think what we have in Paul is letter writing. So many think the book of Hebrews is a sermon that has been written down. I think that may well be. The, the picture throughout Hebrews, and maybe this is the, you know, the verse 12, you will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed. You know, think here of the passages of the triumphal entry, you know, the, he, and, or the picture of the, uh, the, he will lead a host of captives. The imagery is that Christ has, is sort of taking all of creation up into the very presence of God. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, that this is the argument. Where is the, that we'll talk about next time, where is the world? I don't know that we, whether we need to locate it in heaven. I, I mean, it may, it may well be that this is the Holy of Holies, but the Holy of Holies is now made available in this world. Mm-hmm. And so the picture, I think, is that that's the sense that this is the Hebrew writer's version of what John is doing. New creation is unfolding before our eyes. So, a long time ago, in one of the classes I took with you, we talked about Jürgen Moltmann, and he talked about how Christ didn't become fully Christ until his death and resurrection. Does that sound familiar? I don't know what book that he wrote that in. It may be The Crucified God. Yeah, that one. And and I think that, yeah, the idea there is, is not a... I, I think the writer of Hebrews is doing something similar and the New Testament is doing something similar. On what basis does Christ reign? Well, the, the rain, first of all, is an earthly human rain that he is bringing all things in subjection to himself in and through his life, his death, and his resurrection. You know, Paul, Paul will refer to both the life of Christ and the resurrection as saving. Through his life, he saves us. Through his resurrection, he saves us. So it's not just the death of Christ. And so the picture of the writer of Hebrews is that through this process that culminates in the ascension, that Christ is, here is the basis that he's called Son of God. Now don't confuse this with the notion, oh, he's deity on this basis. No, he is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies Hmm. about the, the one who would sit on the throne of David, this divine person, the Yahweh returns. He all of these are combined in who Christ is, so that in that sense, yes, Christ has uh, fulfilled his. I guess it, it it is a fulfillment. It is a process. Okay. It is a work of Christ. But the dan- yeah, but it, you should be careful not to say he doesn't become deity. 
Yeah, it's not that, oh, he wasn't divine and now he, he became divine. Okay. But is Moltmann saying that? Because I thought you cautioned us about that. No, what I was cautioning, no, Moltmann's not saying that. What okay. Moltmann was saying that, I always call Moltmann my favorite heretic. Moltmann kind of brought a lot of, he brings a lot of, Moltmann is doing Hegel. Oh. And what, the part of Hegel that we are, again, uh, Hegel, I, I'm not, I don't want us to be Hegelian, but in the thing that is happening, all of this flowing out of Luther, is to, to make what Christ is doing historical and bringing in the historicity of the work of Christ. Unfortunately, I think Moltmann goes too far and he pictures the death of Christ as a, a, some sort of reality in and of itself that is taken up into God so that he'll picture death and nothingness as being taken up into deity. And that is very Hegelian in its reification of the idea of death. Oh, okay. I don't think death is death is a, a reality on the order of life. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Clarifying. But is there progress in the Bible? Is there progress in Revelation? Yeah, because it's a story. Yeah. It's a story, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Oh, there's been progress. It's progressive. We've gone from this, and now he's showing us the culmination of the progress. But, but to say there's progress in the story of redemption is not to say the same thing as there's progress in God, or that God is evolving. You know, and that's Hegel, that Hegel has the picture of God himself evolving in redemptive history. Moltmann's not quite that bad, but that's the danger in something like an open theology or, the, or uh, even a kind of uh, you know, early heresies is they, they see the development of Christ as you know, that Christ becomes deity. So that's, that was, that's part of the, the thing I'm avoiding here by saying, no, it's not just, the argument is not that Christ is superior to angels because he's deity. Christ is superior to angels because of his incarnation.